Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, is the Canadian public perception of China undergoing a dramatic shift? Ontario saw a jump in COVID-19 cases over the weekend. What does that mean for our continuous reopening? And China is putting the boots to Hong Kong. Considering where they are in the world, is this the right time? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, over the weekend, Ontario saw its largest single-day jump in uh, COVID-19 since about May 8th. Meanwhile, as I mentioned, uh, thousands of people flooded a downtown Toronto park. Uh, and uh, after that, of course, the uh, mayor of Toronto and the premier of Ontario quite upset. Uh, and the premier announcing that uh, testing coming up uh, in the future. First of all, here's what Toronto Mayor John Tory had to say about uh, all of the uh, people in the park in Toronto over the weekend. I was stunned. Uh, I was deeply disappointed to the point where I went over to the park last night to talk to people and say, why are you doing this? Did you not hear the news or did we, uh, you know, achieve less than clarity in what the uh, directions were in terms of groups of five or less and uh, physical distancing of two meters? And it seems more that people just decided this didn't really apply to them, that there was no risk to them, uh, and they didn't consider that there was a risk to everybody else, and they went about doing what they did. Here's what the Premier had to say on that issue and future testing. And the images I saw yesterday from Trinity Bellwoods Park in Toronto, you know, I, I, I thought it was a rock concert at, at the beginning when I went out there. I was absolutely shocked. If you feel you need a test, you'll be able to get a test. So please don't wait. Our assessment centers are ready to receive you. And the only way we can get those testing numbers up, the only way we can get those numbers where they need to be is for everyone who feels they need it to get a test. All right, uh, that is the Premier who will be speaking live a little later on. We will cover his uh, media conference coming up at 1 o'clock in regard to testing and uh, the crowded park in Toronto over the weekend. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, uh, faculty member in Human and Social Sciences, Health Policy Advisor at Wilfrid Laurier University. He is with us now. Ahmad, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Happy to speak to you, Scott. Thank you. All right, so Ahmad, before the weekend, we talked about what could happen as nice weather was arriving and such. Your thoughts on what we uh, witnessed those clips in the park over the weekend in Toronto? Uh, I think the two words that come to my mind are selfish and disappointing. Uh, I understand why people felt the need to go out to the park, and uh, speaking here about Trinity Bellwood Park, and the need to get together in a large group setting. But I think the messaging was not clear enough from the government and from our end to say that uh, you know, this is, does not mean opening up parks does not mean you gather together in big groups. I thought the message was clear, clearly not, because so many people, as we saw from the images and the news reports, have been gathering together in large numbers. That's actually quite disappointing and selfish. I think the problem here, Scott, is that people don't realize the consequences of being asymptomatic, not showing any symptoms, and actually being able to transmit COVID-19 to other vulnerable populations. Uh, that being said, it appears as if this was the only large scenario like that. Uh, this was an anomaly in some ways, I'm thinking, perhaps fueled by social media. Who knows? Um, uh, the fact that we only saw one large scenario like that, is this reassuring? Well, I live in downtown Toronto, and I can tell you as somebody that goes out, tries to go out for runs, is that this is not an anomaly, that there are pockets like this towards yeah. the city. But you are right, like, this was picked the most by social media, and it seems from the images that wasn't there, the scene that a massive gathering of people. But I will tell you that I've been seeing police officers giving tickets to the Wattpad Parks in Toronto. Uh, people this weekend, especially, there was a, a, a surge of people in, in parks because the weather was nice. People assumed things were back to normal. I think the message here is that, you know, we, we heard public health and infectious disease doctors working in ICUs telling us that, Listen, people are still dying. It's really critical times. And that you are, you, there's a, more than 50% of people are asymptomatic and giving the infection to other vulnerable populations. So you and I might be okay, but our elderly uh, family members or immunocompromised children or nieces or nephews, they're not going to be okay. And we must think of them first and foremost before we make that decision to pack the beers in a cooler and go and gather with our friends in a park. 
Can we in large cities do this? I mean, obviously, uh, we can because we're seeing in certain areas where it is possible, others where people choose not to follow uh, the rules. But in in high-density cities, whether it's Toronto, Montreal, or or Vancouver, or even, you know, a smaller urban center like a Calgary or a Hamilton, is, is it wrong in the larger centers to think that people can actually do this? Is it possible? I'm so glad you brought this up, Scott. I've been thinking a lot about this and consulting with my other expert friends on, on this specific issue. I think what we're failing the people here is that we're, we're, we're not addressing the city problems. And by that, I mean is that this crisis is making us realize that we need to adapt and change the way we build our parks. So there yeah. are, to answer your question briefly, there are examples already emerging from cities like San Francisco where parks have been built around COVID-19. And by that, I mean they're creating circles uh, that allow six uh, feet distance, two meter distance between individuals. So I think what we need to be doing right now and not wait is that if we're going to open parks, we need to build uh, very simple structures in the parks to enforce the distancing. We can't keep the onus on people to exercise this. I'll tell you, how do we expect people to go to a park and then figure out on their own what is the acceptable distance? I think we need to put that measures into place and all you need is chalk and you go into parks and you create that distance, you create circles where people can sit together. And technically it should be only family members who are already in the same household and not that you start engaging with the mass public outside. This situation which happened at Trinity Bellwoods Park in Toronto, it certainly has got a lot of, uh, of attention and I'm guessing right the way across the country. Will, mm-hmm. will, is this a learning moment? Absolutely. It's a learning moment. I think it's across the board, a learning moment for both the government and for everybody involved in trying to address this. I think healthcare providers are now realizing that a second wave is inevitable. If this continues, if this behavior continues, now that summer is here, we are seeing a surge in the number of cases, rightly so, because we're opening things up. But we, if people have been asking and begging and demanding that things open up. Let's keep the message clear here is that opening up does not mean that we start conglomerating in big masses and big spaces and, and gathering together. Let's open up gradually and smartly. And doing so means that we don't right away rush the parks and rush to gathering. That's not what we want to do here in order to open things up safely. So uh, now there's lots of chatter about more testing. Obviously, we've got to that capability. Many have asked over the last several weeks why we aren't we haven't done this sooner. And, and really, at the end of the day, it's because we don't have the supplies. We're finally getting to the point where we have the capability to do all of this. Uh, the premier over the weekend uh, said that anybody that wants to get tested uh, is free to do so. We're going to hear a strategy coming up uh, a, a little later on this week. What should a strategy like that entail? Uh, the strategy should first and foremost, the first pillar of it, which I anticipated to be, is that everybody gets tested. So, you know, we started off the strategy by saying only people with certain symptoms, high-risk groups, they have to get assessment first over the phone before they get tested. That was months ago. I think the new strategy will be anybody who wants to get tested, we're already seeing signals of that happening, should be able to get tested immediately without having to be pre-assessed. So by that, I mean, Scott, is that anybody like can go show up to an assessment center and get a test on the spot. And the other key strategy in that, the pillar of that strategy would have to be fast results. So we need to be able to process these results, these tests quick and efficient and be able to inform the person who has COVID-19 of their diagnosis right away so that they can uh, self-isolate immediately. Uh, hopefully we'll get a little bit more uh, clarity on the testing issue today when we cover the press conference at 1 o'clock. But right now with the information that has been put out, avail- that has been made available this weekend, that if you want a test, you can go get one. What should the average person do? I mean, how does the average person re- re- react to that advice? I think the average person should assess their own risk. So if you were one of those people that was at Trinity, Bellwood, or other parks that had mass population of people around, and you were exposing yourself without a face mask or washing your hands or exercising what we've been advocating for for a long time, and you're showing any symptoms, of course, get tested. But even if you just doubt that you've been exposed, please get tested just to be safe for others around you to ensure that you don't engage in the public. Now, if you're going to remain at home, uh, and you're not going out in the communities at all, that, that includes grocery shopping, you have other people doing everything for you, then maybe that's not, you're not one of those people that needs to get tested. But anybody who is leaving their home who suspects has COVID-19, please get tested. 
So where do you think we will be one month from now? I know this is hard to predict, doctor, but uh, considering where the testing is and how testing is beginning to ramp up, if all of a sudden a lot of us start getting tested, what's that going to look like a month from now? It would look like other countries that have been very successful in getting ahead of this COVID-19. The more we test, the more we know who among our community members has COVID-19, and we encourage them to self-isolate to contain the pandemic. I think that in a month from now, we will see an increase in the number of cases by virtue of increasing testing, but also by virtue of that we're reopening things. So we are heading in the right, towards the right direction. We saw a very bad example of how opening up can lead to disastrous consequences this weekend. Let's hope uh, that this will not continue, that with warm weather now uh, here, that uh, people continue to exercise precaution. I hope that this weekend is a learning lesson for all of us uh, that we must maintain vigilance and we have to get ahead of this pandemic. Should the premier have set out some sort of regime for testing before this weekend, just saying, okay, everyone can get tested if they feel they want to and recommended they should? Well, I think part of the problem with that is that we're still trying to figure out capacity, right? So we don't know how many tests we can actually get to process. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now that I think the premier is urging everybody to get testing, we're we're putting pressure on the system in a good way. We're saying let's test the system to its full capacity to really assess how much we need to amp up resources. So uh, at the end of the day, many are saying if we all decided tomorrow to go get a test, we would flood the system. But you brought up a very valid point. This is to test the system, isn't it? Correct. And, and I doubt everybody will go get tested. We haven't seen the case. I mean, you have to remember, Scott, that the majority of Canadians still feel that uh, they're, they're scared to go get tested because they're worried that if they go get tested, they might contract COVID-19. So we're still working on public perception on it is safe to get tested. And let's really rely on our public health experts to convey the message that there are safety precautions happening at those assessment test centers to make sure you do not contract COVID-19 there. The premier did say prior to the weekend that uh, the the assessment centers were not running at full capacity, that people were not necessarily going. Do you think people are fearful of going? To get yeah, a test. we know that to be a fact, actually. We, we surveyed a bunch of Canadians and we realized that the majority of Canadians are actually uh, terrified to go to assessment centres because they're worried that if they don't have COVID-19, they might contract it at the assessment centre. So I think it's important to, to really convey this message that those are public health professionals who are at those centres, that your safety and precautions are of utmost priority, and that you know it's very unlikely you will get COVID-19 by just being at that assessment center. So if you have symptoms or you doubt you have COVID-19, please get tested. And I think that's why the message has changed lately to say everybody should get tested if they need to or they want to. So obviously uh, this in, in an attempt to try to curb those that may be asymptomatic, in other words, have it but not be showing any signs of uh, of any of the illness at all um would would it be safe to say that the majority of the population fit into that category that, I mean, that have really it hard. don't know they have it and are not affected fair, it's fair to say that there's a very good number of us who have it and don't realize we have it or had it in the in the, in, in the past weeks or months right. and didn't really get tested for it and didn't know we had it so it is a bit of, I know it's a bit confusing in that concept, but I think this is why now we're saying, now that we are able to test everybody, please do go get tested if you need to. And, and you know, the, Scott, the hope is that we will get to a point where we have at-home kits so that people don't mm. have to go to assessment centers. We can mail you the testing kit. You can get tested at home and self-isolate immediately in your own home. I think that's really what the goal should be right now. Any idea how far away we are from that? Some countries have been able to actually implement that. Some countries have been very innovative and being able to ramp up their supplies and innovation in terms of getting at-home testing kits. We're not there yet. Hopefully we will in the next maybe six months, I would say. Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, human and social sciences medical doctor and health policy advisor, Wilfrid Laurier University. Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Fascinating article in the Globe and Mail over the weekend from Charles Burton. Uh, and he, of course, with Brock University and McDonald laurie Institute. Uh, in Canada, the tide of opinion is turning on China. And Charles Burton is with us now. Charles, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Good to speak with you, Scott. 
Uh, fascinating article uh, over the weekend in the Globe and Mail. Uh, when did you start to notice that the tide was changing? Well, I think that, uh, you know, when we had things like the letter that the, entitled The Communist Party's Rule by Few Endangers Chinese Citizens, uh, protesting the Chinese government's uh, resistance to any investigation of the sources and spread of COVID-19. And that was signed by, you know, some prominent, very prominent members of the Liberal Party, like Erwin Kotler, former justice minister, a very distinguished human rights lawyer internationally, plus um, the leaders of the Conservatives, Andrew Scheer and Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole all signed on, and many other politicians. And that made me realize that there really is a, a shift in terms of how people are perceiving our relations with China. Um, even our ambassador to China, Dominic Barton, has talked about how the Chinese government is getting negative soft power by their prevarication on COVID-19 and other issues. And, you know, and, and we're 523 days into the absolutely arbitrary detainment of two Canadian citizens, the former diplomat um, Michael Kovrick and the entrepreneur Michael Spavor. I think Canadians are just getting fed up and uh, with how things have been going, and our politicians are picking up on that and, and are responding appropriately. So I'm optimistic that there is a consensus to actually start to do something different to get a reset going with China. Are our politicians uh, realizing that, and how are they responding? Well, I think certainly, um, you know, making these statements against the Chinese regime is something new. I think in the past, our policy has been, well, we should prioritize the development of Canadian prosperity and diversifying our trade dependence on the United States, particularly under Donald Trump, and therefore we should make concessions to the Chinese regime. You know, we shouldn't criticize their um, their uh, human rights record or their international activities in expanding territory in the South China Sea or supporting rogue regimes or, you know, their human rights abuses in China domestically, such as the cultural genocide program against the um, the Uyghur Muslims in the Northwest and so on. So, you know, we, we felt that if we um, made those concessions to China, which, you know, are obviously a, a a, a, you know, a concession in terms of our standing up for our Canadian values of, of freedom and democracy. Anyway, if you made those concessions, that we would benefit economically. As it turns out, we're not benefiting economically. The Chinese government has imposed, you know, completely spurious limitations on our agricultural commodity exports to China that have brought our total external trade to China down from 4% of our exports to, I'm sorry, from 4.7% to 4%. So, you know, being nice to the regime is not helping, and they're showing more and more of this wolf-warrior diplomacy and flouting the the normal standards of the rules-based international order. So, you know, I think if we continue to be essentially supine and showing no, no spine against the Chinese outrages against Canada and COVID-19 in the hostage diplomacy and their violations of their commitments to to trade, then um, they'll just uh, be emboldened to do worse things against us. So I think we really have to rethink this and, and start to do things differently. Uh, does Canada and the world uh, realize, or do they perhaps think they have been played by China here? And have they expressed that to China, especially when it comes to something like Hong Kong? Well, I mean, it is outrageous what China's doing in Hong Kong. You know, we... At the time, the British and the Chinese asked us to endorse the joint declaration, which was then lodged with the UN. So, uh, you know, we actually signed off on it, and now they're they're uh, destroying the one country, two systems through this uh, subversion. Uh, I'm sorry, security law, you know, which bars things like treason, secession, sedition, subversion. You know, very difficult to define. Um, crimes, but basically anything that the Chinese Communist Party doesn't like, if you do it, you'll probably end up in a brutal incarceration and no due process of law. So from that point of view, uh, you know, I think that Canada feels betrayed. The thing is that a lot of Canadians, um, you know, business people and senior policymakers have been receiving benefits from the Chinese regime in terms of board memberships or uh, other associations, business opportunities. And so that has given them an incentive to to 
to go easy on the Chinese regime in the past. But I think there's increasing consensus that, you know, we just shouldn't be doing that any further. And, and those people who are receiving the economic benefits from a foreign state should be required to, to be transparent about it and, and to uh, acknowledge that they're getting benefits from a foreign power, which could give them incentive to not be acting fully in the Canadian interest. Australia has put in some legislation in this regard, the Foreign Influence um, Transparency Scheme Act, and I think Canada will probably be wanting to do something similar. Does China realize it has overplayed its hand here? And, and you know, many in, in these discussions, and, and as you're having here, it's specifically Canada and China. We've certainly heard uh, things positioned in the newscasts in regard to uh, China versus the United States. Really, at the end of the day, is this not China versus the rest of the world or the rest of the free world and democracy? Absolutely. You know, I think it's unfortunate that Donald Trump has made this a uh, China to U.S. thing and hasn't been, um, you know, he's not really much of a team player, is he? But, you know, bringing in the other um, um, like-minded nations who are similarly suffering from China's flouting of the norms of diplomacy and the norms of trade. I mean, we're all in the same thing with China and really have to demand that if China is not able to comply with those accepted standards of fairness and reciprocity that we simply cannot continue to to engage with them the way they want. So, you know, I, I, I do think it is against the whole world, and I do think it's something that, that we need to be standing up to in concert with our like-minded allies. And I think there's increasing movement among uh, particularly the Anglosphere, um, you know, Canada, U.S., uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Great Britain, but also, you know, our European allies and and uh, countries like Japan and South Korea, that it's time for us to, to develop some common standards that we expect China to adhere to, and that if China does not, there should be consequences to that regime and to their, and to their officials. So where does this leave Huawei, Charles? I mean, we've talked about this countless times, um, and it seemed that Canada was the only holdout for a while. And then prior to COVID-19, the UK jumped in and said, uh, yeah, we'll open this door a bit. And, and now it appears they've closed their door. So give us an update on all of this. Where does it leave Huawei? Well, it leaves us as the only member of the Five Eyes uh, Intelligence Sharing Consortium that is still hasn't made a decision on Huawei. And the latest Angus Reid poll that came out uh, a few days ago suggested that four out of five Canadians don't want us to be putting the Huawei 5G into our Bell and TELUS networks. And I think, you know, for legitimate concerns about the Chinese regime's ability to use the, the 5G to engage in in potential sabotage of Canadian infrastructure and also cyber espionage of various types, not to speak of the fact that the U.S. has made it clear that if we put in the Huawei equipment, they won't be able to share intelligence with us the way they have before, which would cause all sorts of problems with our north and the border and so on. So I think the government's really in a position where they finally got to, de to, to decide not to use the Huawei, and if our government is waiting for an opportune moment to announce that we will be adopting Huawei technology, that moment is not going to come because the Canadian public has, has smartened up and recognized that this thing serves the interests of some large corporations but threatens Canadian security to too great an extent to take the risk. Is the Canadian government in line with what the Canadian population is saying? Not yet. I think, uh, you know, I, I think there's still a lot of corporate and political interests who have been um, affected by uh, China in terms of personal benefits to themselves and their companies and have been pressuring our government to, you know, to pedal softly on China. And I mean, certainly you expect the government to pay a lot of attention to big business because they do create our economy and prosperity. But now that um, we're seeing, you know, the opposition parties taking China up as a potential election issue, I think uh, the government will probably uh, see the writing on the wall and start to do the right thing, even though it may disaffect some important, powerful players in the system up to now. But, you know, I think any government that continues to, to make those concessions to China, particularly with the public anger over China's uh, de dissembling on the COVID-19 matter, would be uh, looking for negative uh, political impact of that. And I think, you know, political parties want to be reelected and 
if China becomes an election issue, I think we'll see them doing the right thing. Um, it seems that the government is understanding that four out of five Canadians don't want Huawei uh, operating the 5G network. And as you said in your column here, that the tide is certainly changing uh, on China. When when were, are we going to start to hear that? Is it because of the two Michaels that we're still kind of kowtowing to them? Well, you know, the Prime Minister said that, uh, you know, implied anyway and more or less directly that he doesn't want to queer any deals over the import of the uh, personal protective equipment that we need right. against the COVID-19. And especially if there's a second wave coming up, we're going to need more and more of it. And this leads to, you know, another issue, which is for so many critical things like that, like uh, critical components for electronics like cell phones and computers, China is pretty much the sole source these days. So, you know, because we know that regime will use economic leverage to further their political um, ends, if we become uh, too strong in engaging in, say, pressuring the Chinese government over the investigation of COVID-19 and the origins of it in Wuhan and the relationship between the Chinese regime and the WHO, which is alleged to be uh, pretty cozy, resulting in negative consequences for Canada in the sense of maybe, you know, quite a lot of unnecessary deaths if we'd been better informed about what was really going on. That, um, that, that you know, that that counts for a lot. And so I'm, I'm not anticipating that, that we're going to carry on in the same way for very much longer because the, 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 the tide definitely is shifting. And I think the government has to recognize that their past policy has not worked out. We've got Kovrigan's favor up today, 523 in prison. So any notion that, that uh, you know, what we've been doing in the past has resulted in their release is definitely not borne out by over 500 days of brutal, harsh, terrible treatment for no reason by the Chinese regime except to try and pressure our government over Meng Wanzhou. So, uh, again, as the tide is changing, not only in Canada, but across the world towards China, why would they jump on the Hong Kong issue now? Why, why, why put the boots to Hong Kong when right now they're not being shown in a positive light? Yeah, I mean, I think there is a concern um, within the Chinese regime that Hong Kong and Taiwan have handled the COVID-19 much better than anywhere else. You know, in Hong Kong, there have only been 1,065 cases, four deaths, compared to, you know, much, much higher numbers elsewhere. And Taiwan has similarly been successful. So it does threaten the Chinese Communist Party's claim that they are the best system and government for China when you see these, you know, what you may call alternative Chinas, Chinas based on freedom and democracy, um, performing much better in, in the matter of the disease. So I think it puts pressure on the regime to try and destroy the existing freedoms and, and liberal democracy in Hong Kong. And my guess would be that once they've done that in Hong Kong, they'll probably try and move on to subvert Taiwan as you know another example of a more successful way of having a Chinese government for people who uh, believe in democracy and freedom, that you don't need a repressive one-party human rights abusing um, um, dictatorship to maintain stability and prosperity in China. Uh, clearly, the examples of Hong Kong and Taiwan suggest that there's another way that respects the entitlements to rights of citizens in a way that they're not getting in China today. We want to point out when we have this discussion, this is not about uh, being against Chinese people or Chinese Canadians. This is about democracy uh, versus communism. Uh, sometimes the premier points to racist issues and such more than he will be critical of China. How do you balance that? How do you make sure that this discussion, and we've talked about this before, doesn't get tangled up in the politics or racism and instead is kept a clear discussion of democracy versus communism? No, absolutely. I mean, our Canadians of Chinese origin have nothing to do with the Chinese Communist Party's suppression of key information about the COVID-19. And, and certainly, you know, Chinese of Canadian, Canadians of Chinese origin have made an enormous contribution to the building of our country. And, uh, you know, they should be celebrated as our citizens. And I think certainly they get pressure on the one hand from the Chinese Communist authorities, agents of the Chinese regime who want them to be loyal to China and, and try and coerce them and threaten their families back in China on the one hand. 
and they've been subject to these appalling racist attacks by by people in Canada and the other. And I think our police um, uh, should be doing much more to protect our our citizens of Chinese origin from both, because uh, they really don't deserve the kind of mistreatment that they're suffering. And uh, you know, it's time that we stand up for them. And and racism is just not acceptable in Canada. And uh, are Canadians aware that Chinese Canadians, are they aware that Chinese Canadians here, if they speak out against uh, China, will feel repercussions, their families will feel repercussions back in China? Is there anything we can do to help these people? Is there anything, uh, you know, here they are sort of caught caught in the middle, and if they speak up, uh, relations in the old country are, are 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 certainly tested. What can we do about that? Well, I think we've got to crack down on agents of the Chinese state that are operating illegally in Canada, whether they have diplomatic protection. In other words, you know, there's a very large number of of Chinese diplomats accredited to Canada, more than any other country in the world, including the United States, by a long shot. And so, our suspicion is that proportion of these people are specializing in coercion and pressuring of Canadians in in uh, in Canada um, and Chinese citizens in Canada who you know are also protected by the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms so I think our police should be much more on top of this and if it's a diplomat should declare them persona non grata to make it clear to the Chinese regime that this kind of interference in domestic Canadian uh, affairs and coercion and intimidation of Canadians or people in Canada with Chinese citizenship is just not acceptable under our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. But I don't think our government has given this enough emphasis and and provided the the uh, the RCMP and local police with the resources to effectively come to terms with this appalling uh, behavior. And you know, I think it's high time that we did so. Um, what can Chinese Canadians do who are being pressured by those back in China to spread a certain message here or, or certainly defend uh, the old country? Well, it's very challenging for them. Uh, you know, obviously people who, who made a choice to come to Canada have come mm-hmm. here because they want to enjoy our freedoms and democracy and and free educational system for their children, you know, where there's freedom of of thought and and much greater opportunity than in a society like China that favors the communist elite. So from that point of view, you know, we want them to identify with Canada, and if they are being subject to um, coercion, then that they should report to the police and, and hopefully get some kind of protection. But, you know, that's the problem, is the Chinese regime is able to work beyond borders, and especially in cyberspace and through social media like WeChat, is able to engage with people inside Canada uh, for Chinese Communist Party purposes who really don't want to be part of that because they've become Canadians and want to be part of Canadian society and and serve our nation, not serve the nation that they uh, decided that they'd like to um, emigrate away from. All right, Charles Burton has been with us, senior fellow at McDonnell-Laurier Institute, and latest column in the Globe and Mail in Canada, the tide of opinion on China is turning. Fascinating discussion, Charles. We'll be watching again to see how this all pans out in the next uh, few months or so. We'll chat again. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Take care. Thanks a lot, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've uh, certainly talked about this issue several times and prior to COVID-19, uh, for weeks, we talked about uh, the unsettling conditions in Hong Kong as China continues uh, to strangle Hong Kong and enforce its rule of law. Uh, many proposals uh, similar uh, to, uh, I guess, just enforcing their rule of law over the people of Hong Kong in the past year. And we saw those demonstrations uh, spike before COVID-19. Obviously, during the pandemic, they subsided but have started to pick up again as Hong- as China continues uh, to put pressure on Hong Kong to conform to China's laws and ways of doing things. To talk more about all of this, uh, we're going to bring back from last week Vincent Wong, Research Associate, International Human Rights Program, University of Toronto, Faculty of Law. He is with us now. Vincent, thank you so much for the time. hope you're doing well. Yeah, thanks, Scott. I uh, hope you're doing well and staying safe as well. 
Uh, give us a bit of an update here, Vincent, because obviously we talked at length prior to COVID-19 for weeks about these demonstrations going on in Hong Kong. They were becoming more severe as time went on, obviously subsided during the pandemic, are spiking up again. Considering uh, how the world feels about China right now, are you surprised they're being this aggressive with Hong Kong at this point? Um, no, I'm not surprised, and I don't think anybody in Hong Kong is surprised as well. Uh, it was... I think what uh, people had anticipated something like this might happen. Um, it was only sort of a matter of time. And really, it was a decision that had to be made within the inner circles of Beijing. Obviously, they had different views of what to do with Hong Kong. Some uh, kind of go with the leave it alone uh, uh, line. Some, some people give it uh, a sort of, well, we'll win hearts and minds slowly uh, a sort of view and, and make people sort of slowly more patriotic with different kind of initiatives. Um, and then the third one is the hard line, right, uh, which is what they're going for right now, which is we're going to completely unilaterally uh, enact laws for Hong Kong, bypassing the entire legislature, um, and we'll just directly rule it. Uh, and, and it's not 100 percent there yet, but this current development is the first large step, uh, and it's completely stunning. How have these protests changed uh, pre-COVID-19, post-COVID-19? Are they are, are there as much? Is there the same intensity that there was uh, pre-COVID-19? Yeah, that's a really good question, Scott. Um, so pre-COVID-19, of course, uh, uh, people probably saw scenes of the incredible intensity and um, some of the mass marches that were a million, 1.7 million, 2 million people even, plus um, obviously, with COVID and social distancing, the necessity for that, um, that had stopped for several months. Um, but I was struck uh, some of your comments, Scott, about, you know, um, about what's happening in Toronto and, and, and ways to think about urban centers. Because really in Hong Kong, even uh, though it shares an open border with China, there have only to this day been a total of four deaths mm. in Hong Kong from COVID. And it, I can guarantee you it's not because of the government's. Uh, or some sort of strong governmental mm. law enforcement push. It's actually kind of leftover trauma uh, of SARS from the people. And so right. the, the community response, the mask wearing, the disinfecting has been really, really uh, the driver for that. But what that means is that post-COVID, uh, you know, in, in a, sh- a weird irony, the protests have been able to open up faster than I think people have anticipated because uh uh, transmission has community community transmission has not been as big in Hong Kong because of, of the control of it. But what that means is that um, you know there's now, now that Beijing is going with this extremely um, aggressive kind of unilateral approach, thousands of people have actually taken the streets again uh, this past weekend at Causeway Bay, which is and Wan Chai, which is a, a very populated commercial area. And again, we've had. Um, large kind of uh, clashes with police, tear gas in the middle of the day. Um, so we're back. Uh, getting back, and, and I want to take a sidebar here, getting back to what you said about uh, high density in Hong Kong and the fact that they've done such a fabulous job of controlling this, is, and you said to, to no result of, of the, the Chinese Communist Party in this at all. How, what was their secret? How did they nip this in the bud when they did, uh, especially being a separate country from the Communist Party of China? So, so the approach in Hong Kong has really been uh, different from a lot of other places. Uh, I don't know if it can be replicated necessarily, but it, it, it should question whether or not a hard-handed authoritarian approach is necessarily the only or the most effective way. Um, what, what has basically happened is, well, even before, um, almost everybody in Hong Kong wore masks. So not only was it like a health thing to do, uh, dealing with smog, but it was also a fashionable thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that buy-in was very strong. And right. then so after uh, COVID happened, people already had the muscle memory of SARS. So they knew the importance of social distancing, physical distancing, of staying at home, of really sanitizing surfaces uh, uh, very uh, stringently. And people, um, the protest had created such a strong network of civil society and mutual aid networks that funded, uh, functioned independently of government, that those 
uh, will really be able to mobilize in the effort to uh, shut down COVID, of, of, although there were certain government things that, of course, helped. Um, getting back to, to China's stronghold of Hong Kong, why is this event so significant? What is it about what they're proposing now that has Hong Kongers so upset? Right. So before what would happen is Hong Kong would have to pass its own laws that are highly unpopular. And China uh, is, is kind of at the background there doing certain things that um, would keep the popularly elected lawmakers in the legislative council from gaining power. So the structure is rigged, but it's only quasi rigged so that, you know, you could still do things like hold up a bill uh, uh, or, or what have you. There was some sort of pan-democratic resistance. Um, Beijing has become, uh, especially under the Xi administration, has become increasingly frustrated by this and said, now we're going to take away essentially the power for these law and national security laws to be passed by Hong Kong's legislature, and we're going to directly have the National People's Congress Standing Committee in Beijing create, draft, approve, and directly apply the law. And um, there's a problem with the Constitution where um, this type of law probably is not within the power of Beijing to pass and apply directly. But the National People's Standing Committee is also the same body that has the final uh, court say. It's the final court for any constitutional issue. So for sure, we know that they will essentially say, it doesn't matter, it's constitutional. We say it's constitutional because we say it's constitutional. And then so um, now Beijing essentially directly rules Hong Kong uh, in violation of one country, two uh, principles, uh, two systems principles. As we've talked about this many times, Vincent, prior to COVID-19, is this the final action? Is this the final nail in the coffin here? I think it's the final nail in the coffin for um, the one country, two systems principle. It's pretty much done, isn't it? It's done. Um, It's I mean, you could say whatever cadaver is there, there's some formalistic yeah. structures that, I mean, it's, it's technically there, but there, there's no meaning to it anymore. Um, but the resistance uh, and, and, and the struggle, I think, will not stop. Uh, what will it, it will do, I think, is, and we'll see where this goes, is it ties the fates of um, Hong Kongers much more directly with the people in the mainland who also, um, you know, have have certain qualms with this administration, um, are cracked down on, are thrown in jail. The journalists, the uh, political dissenters, the unionists, the feminists um, that are in mainland China and are sort of being stifled by a very ham-fisted Xi regime. Um, it, it binds the fate much more closely. And then so it remains to be seen exactly how the movement will uh, shift and what direction it will shift. But certainly, I think uh, there are indications, every indication to believe that uh, this is the end of one country's two system. And this is the end of Hong Kong as we know it. Um, mm. And we'll see what happens, uh, what, what takes the place of that. Uh, interesting article in the Globe and Mail over the weekend by Charles Burton talking about how the tide of opinion is turning on China, not only in Canada, but around the world. Is China at a crossroads right now? Or are uh, they just pedal to the metal and aggressive as ever? Right. I mean, I think it's important to contextualize what China is doing in a global wave of essentially ultra-nationalist governments. So, it, it, they're certainly very authoritarian and much more digitally authoritarian than many other uh, countries. But uh, the governments all around the world have been um, tapping into a highly exclusionary, uh, ultra-nationalist, uh, make X country great again sort of um, a dialogue. And so uh, basically... What is happening is that China is doing what other, every other kind of author, uh, ultra-nationalist authoritarian nation is doing, except better. Um, so, yes, the, 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 the world is uh, kind of, I, th- I think internationally there's a lot of uh, pushback against what China is doing. But um, it really speaks to, I think, a global phenomenon 
that we really need to be pushing back against if we if we believe uh, human rights are important, if we peace, if we believe democratic institutions are important, and if we believe uh, you know social economic justice is important. Right? These are the mm. things that uh, yes, China is. Um, uh, uh, you know, the Chinese government is to be opposed on, on, on certain issues, but, but really, uh, I think the people need to push back of, upon wherever they are in the world. We have heard stories about uh, Chinese Canadians who have come here like every immigrant for a, a better way of life and, and future for their family and such that are getting pressure from uh, uh, the Chinese mainland to toe the line. And if they speak out against things that are uh, anti-communist party of China, that there are repercussions back there. What is life like for those in Hong Kong? Would they not be experiencing the same thing? Uh, yeah, so I think that pressure um, is, 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 is not even. Not all Chinese Canadians would face that. Um, right. And uh, obviously the Chinese diaspora in Canada is very, very diverse and very large. Um, so, so you can't kind of paint them with one brush. Yeah. Uh, but what I would say is uh, the, the, the certain groups, for, for example, if you're um, Uyghur or if you're Tibetan, um, that pressure is extremely, extremely high. Uh, and for Hong Kongers, it is uh, becoming increasingly large as well. That's one of the reasons why you see, uh, I think the Globe and Rail reported that at, at the end of March, there were maybe 50 or so asylum claims um, from mm-hmm. Hong Kong for political uh, refugee status because of how bad things have, have been going there. Um, in terms of the, the actual pressure, I think it's, it's, it's important to know that, um, the, yes, there is a, a Chinese Communist Party United Front work, but that is not as strong as people think it is. It's not mm-hmm. as uh, powerful. It, 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 it does guidance. I mean, I think it tries to guide people along certain nationalist uh, interests. But um, it really relies on the power of uh, social media, on the power of controlling informational lines and uh, uh, controlling a narrative, a monopoly on what it means to be acceptably Chinese. Right. Um, And that's I think the the social pressure of that is far more um, effective in in keeping people reticent about uh, talking publicly um, on positions that might be sensitive to the Chinese Communist Party. So uh, I, I, I think it's there. It's important to look at, but it's important also to not to overstate the ability of the government to actually influence um, what is a very large Chinese diaspora. How are Chinese Canadians feeling about this? And by that, I mean what's been happening with COVID-19, repercussions from that, and then what we're seeing happening in Hong Kong. Uh, it's an incredibly uh, complex and tense environment right now, right? Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think that's a very good question, Scott. And, and uh, unfortunately, I don't have time to, to fully unpack it in this yeah. uh, short period. But uh, at, at, the, at the same time as there's a, a rising anti-CCP international sentiment, there's also a conflation of this with anti-Chinese uh, racism and, and more broadly anti-Asian racism. Um, How do we make sure this is about ideology and and communism versus democracy as opposed to a race issue? How do we stop it from going there? Uh, Well, first of all, I don't even think it's a communism democracy issue. Uh, The the, the Communist Party of China hasn't really been actually communist uh, since probably 1978. It's it's an authoritarian capitalist country. Right. Um, But I think uh, this is a very tricky issue. if I were to, to throw a rough analog out there, I would say it would be something similar to critis- um, anti-Semitism and criticism of perhaps what the Israeli uh, government is doing in its certain its policies, right? Uh, the, the line there is kind of hard to draw sometimes, um, and it's very, very sensitive, but it needs to be drawn. Um, and so uh, criticism of the... Uh, CCP doesn't necessarily need to engage uh, racism, but frequently it, it, break, it breaks that line. And when that line is drawn and when, when it's, it becomes a collective punishment against the people, uh, that is really where um, racial tendencies and, and, and uh, 
and, and racism can foment. So I think that's where the line is drawn, but it's a very tricky line to, uh, to draw indeed. What is your message to Canadians who are trying to understand all of this? Ooh, um, I would say one is that line that I just said, right? Um, mm-hmm. Governments don't represent a people. Yeah. And uh, if I were to criticize, let's say, Justin Trudeau's administration on a certain uh, policy or, or whatever, um, I, I wouldn't necessarily be labeled as uh, anti-patriotic or, or, or that sort of thing. But that's what the Chinese government is trying to do. Uh, they're trying to conflate all people's, Chinese people's views into saying that they, we represent them. And uh, to fight against racism, to fight against uh, xenophobia, is to also separate a country from its people. You could have criticisms of uh, the CCP as a government without having um, basically, uh, you know, anti-Chinese kind of racism. So uh, that's what I would say, and and to be careful uh, about that, um, you know, when when you're navigating these these tense political environments, and a political environment that seems to be uh, trending every day towards, you know, kind of a Cold War 2.0. I mean, that would be Mm. horrendous. Uh, So so we all have to be aware of the consequences. Well said. As we get back to Hong Kong, Vincent, what do you see in the immediate future? Um, so what's happening in the immediate future is because of the national security laws that have been passed, um, it pretty much, uh, sorry, that will be passed very soon by Beijing. Uh, all sorts of political dissent uh, and even reporting is going to be under high scrutiny and high risk. Um, so what people are doing right now are they're mass installing VPNs um, to, to trace their Internet behavior. They're scrubbing uh, sort of their political activity uh, from their online social media profiles because they know uh, at the end of the day that these could be used as criminal evidence against them in any sort of subversion or secession or or those kinds of uh, prosecutions. Um, and and they're gearing up. They're gearing up for for another fight. Uh, and they're gearing up to I think. Uh, Hong Kongers realize that, uh, you know, the, the struggle doesn't end just because the formal political legal ins, uh, systems have abandoned them, right? Uh, th- that has never been just, it's never been just goal-oriented. It's, it's, it's kind of a struggle to see hope rather than uh, you see hope because you see a goal at the end of the light. So I think Vincent Wong has been with us. Vincent Wong is a research associate, International Human Rights Program, University of Toronto Faculty of Law, talking about Hong Kong and their ongoing struggle to stay independent from China. Vincent, thanks so much for the time. As always, much appreciated. Be well. Appreciate it. You too, Scott. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.